The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, before we get started this evening, let's make sure that we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together this evening to fellowship around the study of your word. We thank you that your word is our benchmark of truth, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that your word is sufficient for everything in our life, that you have revealed to us everything that we need. You have provided everything that we need at the cross, and your grace is more than enough for every issue we face in life. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would continue to encourage us and strengthen us in our spiritual advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31. And last time, as we looked at this episode, we're focusing on the last part of what's called the Jacob-Laban section of Genesis, where you have this conflict between Jacob and Laban uh, from about chapter uh, 29 on. And you have this situation where God is training Jacob in his spiritual life. Now, the text doesn't make a a big deal about that. We're not talking about this in terms of something we'd find in the New Testament. But it is something that you watch as you move through this text, that as Jacob leaves the land in Genesis 27, and he's going out through Bethel, and God appears to him and promises that he's going to protect him and watch over him, and that God will bring him back to the land. The Jacob that we see there is a young Jacob, a young Jacob who is still full of himself, a young Jacob who is still thinks that he can manipulate God to get his blessings. This is the Jacob that's running away because he's the one who has uh, tricked his brother into selling him his his uh, birthright, and then when he goes in for the blessing from his father, he tricks the he tricks old blind Isaac into giving him the blessing. So this is Jacob's character. His name Yaakov, uh, Yaakov means heel grabber. He's the conniver. He's the one who's trying to always make sure that his interests are number one, and he's going to get exactly what he deserves to get uh, out of life. And so as we get into chapter 31, we realize what is going on here as he's finally leaving um, and fleeing from Laban. We see that what has been going on in Jacob's life now for 20 years has been a series of people tests. And God uses various different kinds of tests in our lives in order to teach us and to build into us the spiritual 
uh, virtues that come in, and as a result of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. One of the problems that we've seen in Jacob, one of the key problems from his spiritual life, is a lack of humility. He's, he's full of himself, he's arrogant, and God has to teach him humility before you can go anywhere in life, before you can be used of God, before you can really go, really advance in any business, career, profession, there has to be a level of genuine humility and teachability. If you're operating on arrogance, think you have the solution to everything and the answer to every problem, and you're trying to tell everybody how to do something, you're never going to get anywhere in life. And many people have that idea, especially when they're young, and God usually has to take us down a notch or two in our 20s or 30s, or we're never going to get anywhere at all in our spiritual growth. And this is exactly what God had to do with Jacob. And it's interesting that with Jacob, he uses somebody, he uses Laban, and Laban has the same sin nature trends and the same sin nature characteristics that Jacob has. And so often that's the case that you find that you're up, you have a conflict with somebody. And if the truth were known, that's because you're very close in personality and trends of your sin nature with this other person, whether it's a parent or whether it's an employer or someone else. So we see this picture of Jacob as the conniver, and he has to leave, he has to flee the land. He goes north and and stays with his relatives up in Padan Aram. And while he's up in Padan Aram, of course, as soon as he gets there, he sees the woman he wants to marry, Rachel. But then he's introduced to his uncle, who's Rachel's father, and Laban, Uncle Laban, is going to out-connive the conniver. He's going to out-cheat the cheater. He's going to out-trick the trickster. And he is going to basically mistreat and abuse and take advantage of Jacob for the next 20 years. And so the Jacob that is coming out of the land now in chapter 31 is a different Jacob than the Jacob we saw leaving the land 20 years earlier. And he's grown, he's matured, he's matured spiritually. This really comes out when we get into the next chapter, in chapter 32, as he enters into the land. He has a face-to-face encounter with God at a place called Penile, which means face-to-face with God. And this is where he wrestles with the angel of God, and, and the angel of God strikes him on the hip, and he's crippled after that, and there's, you know, we'll get into all of that. But it is in that episode that God is going to change Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. And the new name, Israel, means one who is mighty with God or one who is strong with God. Some say it means prince with God. We'll have to get into all of the issues over that name when the time comes. But the issue is that the name Israel is a name that indicates the spiritual maturity of Jacob. He's no longer Jacob the trickster, the conniver. He is now someone who is strong with God. So that name change is, is extremely significant. And after chapter 32, when we study Jacob in those last few chapters before we get into the, the, J, uh, the Joseph part of Genesis, that those last few chapters with Jacob, we don't see Jacob the conniver, the trickster, the manipulator anymore. And so what is sort of implicit throughout these chapters, which is what I want to bring out tonight and in the next couple of weeks, is this spiritual growth process that's occurred in the life of Jacob. 
because this is the same process that we all go through. No matter what dispensation we're in, now some of the details differ. For example, Jacob did not have a completed canon of Scripture. Jacob did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but what did he have? Well, he had the Abrahamic covenant. He had a God who would appear to him and talk to him on a couple of occasions. So there are, uh, that didn't happen with everybody, by the way, but it happened with the Abrahamic family because of the Abrahamic covenant. And so we see the same principles, even though some of the dynamics for the spiritual life are a little bit different. They are, there are many uh, similarities, many things that continue. So we see this contrast with, with uh, Jacob and Laban. And Laban, there's, there, there's no growth in Laban whatsoever. Laban is still the conniver, cheater, uh, trickster that he always was. And last time we saw that, that Jacob had finally been prospered by God. And you don't have any prosperity until you've been prospered by God. And God kept him down, kept him from growing in prosperity most of the time he was there in Padan Aram. And that was because God was teaching him humility. But once it was, he had learned his lesson, it was time for God to bring him back to the land. He prospered Jacob also in that process. He's vindicating Jacob because as we learn in this chapter, Jacob has been maltreated and abused and cheated by dear old uncle Laban for all these years. And now God is going to, as he so often does, in, in multitasking, God is not going to, is going to at the same time fulfill his promise to bless Jacob and set him up for the future of the nation through, through the material prosperity that God gives him. But on the other hand, he's going to give him that prosperity by taking it away from dear old Uncle Laban and the cousins, which is going to be the outworking of the Supreme Court of Heaven and the justice of God on on Jake, on, uh, on Laban at that same time. And just to review the chapter, what happens is after they go through this episode with the, uh, animal husbandry, where God blesses the flocks of Jacob so that all the striped spotted lambs that are born go to Jacob, and all of a sudden for the period of time, all the lambs that are born are striped spotted and mottled, and so they all go to Jacob, and next thing you know, Laban's looking around wondering where all of his flocks have gone, and Jacob's got now, now has all the big flocks and herds, and Jacob doesn't. And so the brothers now respond in bitterness, and we saw that the framework of the, these tests have been people tests. God tests us in many different ways. There's uh, all kinds of system tests, and there's people tests, and there's thought testing, and all these different categories of testing, but people testing is one of the ways that God uses to teach us some of the basic Christian virtues. If you think about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, how many of those relate to personal relationships in dealing with other people who are just as nasty, rotten, sinful as we are, except we don't think of ourselves as being nasty, rotten, undependable, unfaithful sinners, but they do. So we always have to deal with uh, people who are sinners, and it is whenever we have to deal with people who are sinners, it usually isn't long until we get entangled in some kind of situation that's pretty devastating, that's uh, where we're hurt emotionally or disappointed, or we just become uh, anything from mildly irritated to downright antagonistic, hostile, and bitter towards somebody. So we all face these kinds of situations 
every single day. And you, it may not be somebody who's in your family, but it may be that you are in a position at work where this is either a co-worker who is slandering you or gossiping about you or trying to uh, build their career by pushing you down, or it's an employer who is not as bright as you are, takes credit for all of your work, or is uh, taking advantage of you in a ver- various different ways, or it could be a it could be a friend, or it could be any number of people. It could be just the fact that that you have to deal with people who don't function like you think they ought to function, and so that is a constant, uh, a mild irritant, but a constant irritant, and that's often true today. We live in a world where there's a tremendous amount of disappointment. I think that all of us face. Because we're dealing with a culture that is in in a, a deep nosedive into paganism, and as it seems like ten or fifteen years ago, it was every two or three years we saw a major shift. It's it seems to me, and maybe I'm just hypersensitive, but it seems to me like we see massive deterioration now from month to month. And it just gets worse. And I think that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who know the truth, not in an arrogant manner, not but because we have the Word of God and we know the Word of God is true, and because we're able to look at history and culture from a divine viewpoint and understand what is going on and what the absolute principles are and what's being, uh, what is being, uh, Denied and rejected in, and in our own culture and watch leaders that are in self-deception. It just, it just gets kind of irritating. And I know I get irritated over it and sometimes it just, it, it really bothers me. And we look at it ever since September 11th, we look at a, at a nation that is at war with, with, um, Islam. But we live in a world that doesn't want to admit that we're at war with Islam. You look at vast majority of Muslims who do not want to admit to the terrorist factions within Islamic theology, and they are misled, and, and there's just as much a liberal mindset in to, among some Muslim uh, uh, factions or groups as there is among Christianity. You've got a lot of Muslims who are just superficial Muslims. They don't really know what is being taught or what is being said, and they don't understand how Islam has always been spread by violence. And when they mean peace, what they mean is peace by dominating and destroying anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. And so when, you know, Islam, the S-L-M, comes from the same root that the Hebrew word shalom comes from, which means peace, but our submission, and what they mean is they get peace when everybody has submitted to Allah. And so when we have a president who can't admit that publicly, when we have uh, leaders, political leaders and religious leaders, who don't have the objectivity or the spiritual courage or the moral courage to stand up and say, uh, what's really going on and identify that this is a religious war. If it's a religious war on their side, it's a religious war. And it's a religious war on their side. And we, and we live in such a secularized culture in the West that Western, the Western mindset can no longer understand or comprehend a culture that is based on a religious mindset and, the, and a belief in absolute values that dominate 
and determine what they're going to do in life. And so we get frustrations over that. We get frustration because it bleeds over into the uh, insecurity of the borders, and we have so many uh, illegal immigrants pouring across the border. They said today there's 400,000 illegal immigrants living in Houston. Well, let's just all, let's just have a, a, a Let's just have a, a amnesty and let them all go free. Well, what part of illegal don't people understand anymore? And see, all of all these things all flow out of the same root problem, and that is we, as a culture, we have bought into a worldview that denies absolutes. And if you're a Christian, then often I don't know. I know maybe it's just me, my sin nature, but I just live with a tension that seems to get more frustrating uh, every month just about living within a culture that where people just can't see truth for what it is anymore and it's things like that are all these out exterior points of pressure on a Christian life on top of the fact that that we've got gas that's gone from you know, three dollars to two dollars and back up to three dollars a gallon, and you've got uh, increased electric bills and food prices, and all across the board, prices are going up, putting pressures on people's uh, people's wallets because of this, uh, just because of the price of, of gas and transportation, electricity, and everything else gets factored in. So we have those pressures. Plus, on top of that, you have just the plain old pr- pressures and adversity of life of having to live with. Uh, a spouse that you love, but they're a sinner, and they disappoint you at times and irritate you at times, and you probably irritate them at times. And you have children that are not as positive to the Word of God as you wish they were, and so you get concerned and worried about them. And We just all have all these things that go on in our own lives, and so God is using all of these as tests because it's, we're not living in a world fundamentally that's any different from the world that our our, our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents lived in in terms of the kinds of tests that they face. It's just that we tend to live in a more intensified time because of technology, because of communication, because of uh, various pressures that are put on us. Uh, we face things in a more rapid fashion than people did before. So we have to learn how to pass these, uh, ad- the, these tests and handle the pressures of these adversities without just, you know, going postal on our family and our neighbors and everybody else. because And that's one of the reasons we have these things that take place, like Columbine and many of the other, some of the other things that have gone on and people who have uh, gone, gone a little berserk at, at post office facilities too often and other things of that nature. I mean, how many of you remember when you were kids, and I know Tom does and a couple of the others, but right here in Houston, I remember going to high school, and you'd see the Ag Boys driving their pickup trucks to high school, and they'd have a thirty thirty on the gun rack or a shotgun, and it was no big deal. We, we never thought twice about it. But now, you know, they'd be thrown in jail and under the jail and you know, all, all these other things. Our society has changed so much because of all the various dynamics that, uh, come and all these are outside uh, pressure points that put pressure on every one of us as a believer, and it affects our mental attitude, and it can it can affect our mental attitude, and it can affect our our focus. Now you look at a guy like Jacob, and Jacob's in a similar kind of environment. He's in an environment where his whole life is being controlled by his father-in-law, who is always taking advantage of him. He says. 
in the text here that uh, ten times uh, Laban deceived him and changed his wages. Of course, we all know the big deception that he worked for seven years to marry Rachel, and on the wedding night he got the girls got switched on him, and he ended up marrying uh, the ugly older sister, uh, Leah, and then he has to work another seven years for Rachel. And then after that, he still doesn't have anything, so he can't leave and go home, so he has to work another uh, six years before he has enough Uh, resources, physical, material, financial resources to be able to go uh, back to to the promised land. And that's where we left it last time. And so what I want to do tonight is just a little overview of how all this people testing works just to remind us to think how we need to think through this kinds of testing. Just a general overview. Point number one, God works to bring about the maturity in the life of believers through various tests. This is James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know. See, it's based on knowledge, not feeling, not because you feel, but because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This is a principle that has been operational in the fallen, in the spiritual life of fallen creatures since day one since Adam fell, is that God tests the doctrine in our soul through all kinds of different tests, tests of adversity, tests of prosperity. And they come in all manner of different size, sizes and shapes. And they, the, the, some of them don't come with an announcement ahead of time. And that's what James is talking about. When you encounter, and the word there for encounter in the Greek means to fall into. You're just walking down the trail of life, and all of a sudden you're, you, you fall through a, a pit. And there you are, and you didn't expect it, and you have to be ready to handle it at a moment's notice with the doctrine that's in your soul. And that means we have to be ready to think about what's going on in life and what the situation is, and not just emote and react which is how most people handle things, and that's how we handle it until all of a sudden, after about two or three seconds, we wake up and say, okay, you know, kick the emotion out of gear and let's start thinking and handling it with the Word of God. So God brings us to maturity using these tests, and they're either tests of adversity or tests of prosperity. Point number two, these tests are designed to teach us God's faithfulness and to train us in using the spiritual skills that God has given us. So the tests are designed to teach us about God's faithfulness. Now, sometimes I think that if we were take, to take the whole Bible and sum it all down into, into, into a couple of phrases, what we're learning is that God is faithful to his word. Over and over and over again, that's the message that comes across. And that's part of Satan's challenge from the satanic fall before the creation of Adam and Eve is that God's not faithful and he's not fair. I mean, these ideas are wrapped up together. So the tests are designed to teach us that God is faithful and how to use these spiritual skills that God has given to us, God has provided for us. And what I mean by the spiritual skills are familiar to most of you, not all of you. And that's the third point. The spiritual skills are basically a boiled-down summary of various techniques that are taught again and again in the scriptures for handling the problems that we face in life. We just take all these different things that are taught in the scriptures and boil them down to a ten-point summary. If you capture those ten skills, you've got it. 
Well, you think you have it. But now we have to learn how to implement it, and that's not always uh, easy. So the spiritual skills are just a boiled-down summary of ten basic techniques or skills that God has uh, is training us to utilize in our spiritual growth. Now, the foundation for these spiritual skills is a doctrine of Scripture called the sufficiency of God's grace. And the word sufficiency sounds like it's not quite enough, but it is. That's what the word means. It means it's enough. It's enough. No matter how big your crisis is, no matter how many uh, attacks of adversity you get during the day, the point is the grace of God is always enough. It is sufficient. You don't need anything else. That's the other part of what sufficiency means, is that God's grace is enough, and it excludes everything else. So God has a way for us to handle problems, which means we're totally dependent upon Him and utilizing what the Scripture says in handling those problems. And all the other techniques that people use to handle adversity might be good, and it might get them through life, but guess what? They don't do anything for you in terms of your spiritual life. They may make it possible for people to function, but the goal in the Christian life isn't to function. The goal in the Christian life is to glorify God by utilizing what God gives you. And see, the goal of psychotherapy is to make you functional in life. And I always remember a statement that Jay Adams made in his book on, I think it was on the self-image. Jay Adams was a uh, real pioneer in what I would call true biblical uh, counseling. He was a professor of in the pastoral ministries department at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and he wrote a classic work called Competent to Counsel back in the early early 70s, or maybe it was even the late 60s, but I remember reading it when I was, a, I think, a senior in college, and his whole thesis was all you need to deal with any problem in life is the Word of God. You don't need psychotherapy, and, I, and since those early days, in the, in, and it was really interesting, in, at Dallas Seminary, they invited Jay Adams to come and speak in chapel at one of the Bible uh, conferences one semester in, uh, in either 72 or 73, and that was his message. And it was built on the sufficiency of grace and the sufficiency of Scripture. And the next year, they had to invite a psychologist in who countered everything because that was just too much to, that you don't need to go through training and psychotherapy in order to help people. And how many pastors go out and think, well, I'm not really competent to help anybody with the problems that they face in life uh, because I don't have a degree in psychology. So that, that's just a lie that's come across in our cultures, the scripture is not enough. But if we had to wait until Freud or Maslow or Jung or any of the other contemporary psychotherapists came on the scene in order to learn how to handle these emotional, psychological problems that people have, then, then you know, God's word just wasn't sufficient. What in the world did they do for 1,800 years between the time of Christ and the time of, of Freud? The Scripture is sufficient to handle any and every problem. I don't care what it is. The Word of God is sufficient. The problem is that most people don't want to do, really do what the Word of God says to do. They just want to act like it. The arrogance produces self-deception, and a lot of people don't really want to do what the Word of God says. 
The Word of God says the basic problem isn't that your mother dropped you on your head when you were a kid or your father abused you or whatever it was. The basic problem is you're a sinner and you're trying to make life work and find happiness apart from doing it God's way. That's the basic problem. And we all, every human being faces heartache, disappointment, adversity, problems, uh, abuse, whatever it might be. Uh, there may be different categories and different degrees that some people have gone through more than others, but the Word of God is always sufficient. And this is the emphasis of Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, that as His divine power has given to us what? Most things, some things, all things. That's a pretty inclusive word, all. That His divine power, God's omnipotence. God is capable in His omnipotence to give us what we need. Not only that, in His omniscience, He knows all the knowable, so He knows everything we're going to need. He knows every difficulty every human being throughout all of human history is going to face. And so because God knows all that's knowable, He's able to provide, and in His omnipotence, He's all-powerful, so He's able to provide everything that we need. So his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Two different words there. The first word for life is bios, which is where we get the word biology. And it has to do with physical life, the physical sustenance of life. So God in his grace gives us what we need logistically. That doesn't mean that there's always going to be three square meals on the table every day but that God is always going to provide what we need to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish. That's the key. It's not that he's going to give us everything that you think you need or everything that I think you need or everything that we might want, but God's going to give us what we need to accomplish what he has in store for us. So if God's plan for your life includes the fact that you're going to be thrown in prison for your faith in Jesus Christ and you're going to eat a prison diet, not an American prison diet, let's say a Chinese prison diet, for five or six years before you get out, then you're still going to be alive. God kept you alive through whatever meager food was provided for you, but God had a plan for your life, and that plan included being in prison and whatever ministry you could have uh, in that prison as a result of, of uh, your own spiritual life, but God's going to keep you alive to do what he wants you to do. So God's divine power is given to us all things that pertain to bios life and godliness. Now, this is a tough word to deal with. It's the word eusebeia in the Greek, and godliness is one of those words like holiness and that that in in English it's just been used and overused so much and most people don't have a clue what it means. And the word godliness in the English is not a bad translation, but we don't understand what that means in English anymore. That L-I-N-E-S-S is derived from the Old English likeness. Like manliness, man-likeness. It's the qualities and characteristics of what? Of a man. So godliness is the qualities and characteristics of God. So God has given us everything we need to produce in us what? The qualities and the characteristics of God. To produce his character in us. 
We think of that as the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians uh, 5, 23 and following. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness. All these things are the fruit of the Spirit. This is the character of God. So His divine power has given us everything that pertains to what? Bios life and use of bay of the spiritual life. Our spiritual life and growth. Now, if you take those two words, can you think of anything that you're facing between the cradle and the grave that doesn't come under one of those two categories? Not a thing. That's sufficiency. God has all the bases covered. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been been given, uh, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. So, what's the key element in that spiritual growth? It's the promises, i.e., the Word of God. God has given us His Word. It is His Word that is sufficient. As believers today, we have a completed canon of Scripture. That means that God has spoken in such a way that He's given us all the data, all the examples, and all the instruction that we need to face and handle any circumstance or situation in life. It's all there. It's completely uh, sufficient. We don't need to go and look anywhere else. We don't need any new discoveries. We don't need to be given any new revelation, no new insight. It's all there. So what the Scriptures provide for us are the principles and the procedures and the protocols for living a life based on divine viewpoint. And as we learn the divine viewpoint for all those principles, procedures, and protocols, God gives us little pop quizzes along the way to make sure we're learning our lesson. He gives you pop quizzes. He gives me pop quizzes. I had a fun pop quiz last night. Uh, Pam went out to had a meeting to go to last night, and so... I decided I wanted to have a little Mexican food. So I went up to Mexican restaurant, and I didn't want to sit by my, go get a table, sit by myself. So I just walked in and sat down at the bar to order dinner there. And I looked across the bar, and there was a man I knew, an acquaintance, didn't know him very well, that was sitting across on the other side. And he came over and said hi, and we talked for a few minutes. He went back and sat with uh, uh, another man, friend of his. And I ate my dinner, and then... When uh, I got up to leave, the um, waitress said, oh, no, no, he took care of your meal. So that meant I had to go over and uh, say something nice to him and chat with him a few minutes. So I did, and he said, well, why don't you sit down? He introduced me to his friend, and uh, his friend was a Muslim. So he said, now, and it's like I said, this was just an acquaintance. I didn't know him very well. And he said, now, now, you're a pastor, right? Well, what kind of church do you pastor? I mean, this was this acquaintance of mine, not the Muslim. So I told him, and then the uh, Muslim said something like, well, we can, we can all get along because we all believe in the same God. See, you just never know when the tests are going to hit you and how they're going to hit you and how well you have to be prepared. And, you know, every now and then people, I, I, get, I get feedback from some folks and they say, well, you, know, you just spend too much time on apologetics or too much time on this. No, I don't. Because when, one of the things that I learned from, from the conversation last night is that if you are a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, you are drilled so intensely on how to deal with a Christian that they can out-deal you up one side 
of the room and down the other side of the room, and they know how to answer anything and everything that you say. And yet the Word of God says that you and I have a responsibility to witness to everybody and to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And see, that means we have to understand to some degree where they are coming from so that to the best of our ability, we can give an answer for the hope that's in us. Now, what I hate is going home afterwards because, you know, you just beat up on yourself. And, you know, they said this, and I should have said this, and why didn't I think of this, and why did I fall into that trap? And, you know, and I know that, that I just let myself get suckered right at the beginning, and, and I failed the, the, uh, the don't answer the fool according to his folly test right after the, right off the bat. How many times do I teach that? <laughs> See? It's, it's a lesson, you know, God's little application time. And, uh, I, I should have just, said, well, let's not answer that question right away. Let me ask you a question. How does God deal with your sins? How are you going to get into heaven if you're not righteous? And just, But I, I was what I would call aggressive. I was not going to allow him to get away with this statement that we all believe in the same God. I said, no, we don't. And I said, you're, you're, my God's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and your God is hates the Jews. So that's not the same God. To which you replied, oh, well, the Jews have just, you know, the, the, your, your Bible's all corrupt. That's just the Jewish version, and it's, it's all wrong. And, you know, afterwards, <laughs> afterwards, as, as I was driving home, of course, I called up my good friend Gene Brown. I said, we've got to debrief a little bit. And uh, Gene, I said, well, Gene, I just spent the last hour trying to talk to a Muslim. He said, what was it like? I said, you don't get anywhere. He said, it's like talking to a brick wall. Uh, it really is. And, and it's in that kind of a situation. And every, anytime you talk to a, uh, especially somebody who's trained in any cult or false religion, they, uh, they're so drilled into the pat answers and what to say at every point that you really have to build uh, and develop a relationship, and it takes time. Everybody I've talked to who works in evangelism ministries in these areas talks about how long it takes. It's not a one-shot deal, but sometimes that's all you have, and you do the best, the best you can and try not to start a holy war in the process. So it was it was just a really interesting conversation, but that is that's the test. But it's also a people test because you're dealing with an individual who just has so bought into one lie after another that they can't ac- accept that whatsoever. But it's a uh, it's a test in that area. It's a test in what I've been teaching on apologetics and even the the Da Vinci Code. He trotted out almost every argument that you find in the Da Vinci Code. And part of the reason for that is not because they bought into this from the Da Vinci Code, but because one of those Gnostic Gospels that I've talked about when we talked about the Da Vinci Code was the Gospel of Barnabas. And the Gospel of Barnabas was known by Muhammad. And that was about the only thing he had to tell him anything about Jesus or about Christianity was this Gospel of, of Barnabas. And so he, he got this idea that Jesus was married, Jesus had children, uh, and that's Jesus was, in Islam, Jesus is just a prophet. And that the Bible is corrupt, that the uh, apostles and prophets, uh, I mean, that the apostles who wrote the New Testament changed things. And so, you know, I tried all the normal kinds of things. Like I would, I asked this guy last night, I said, okay, a million years ago when Allah was all by himself, 
out there in the universe, and there was no universe yet. He hadn't created anything. Uh, I said, who did he love? And he, he, he said, you know, he, he skirted around that. He said, oh, the Quran talks about God's love in many, many different ways. I said, name one. He says, he has compassion. I said, well, who did he have compassion on a million years ago? Who did he love a million years ago? I said, with a singular God, uh, he had to create people. That means if, he's, if, he, if he really is love, then he's got to create people in order to demonstrate that, which means he's, he's dependent on his creation. And, you know, he just moved off the subject very fast. You know, obviously the guy's been well-trained, interacted with some Christians before. And I, he said, well, yeah, but we, we believe that Jesus is a good prophet. And I said, no, I said, but that's totally inconsistent. How can you believe Jesus is a good prophet when Jesus said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Either he's telling the truth or he's a liar. If he's a liar, he's not a good prophet. Well, he didn't really say that because, you see, the Bible has been translated so many different times. It's so corrupt uh, that there have been so many different... We don't know what the original Bible said. There's no way we can figure that out. See, that's right out of the Da Vinci Codes, right out of the Epistle of Barnabas. See, that's where all these ideas come from. So we just have to... And I'm thinking, sitting there thinking, you know, if I'm having to deal with this in this way... How in the world are people at West Houston Bible Church, how would they respond if they were in this same situation? See, you've got to be trained just as well as me. You can't rely on, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me call the pastor, find out the answer. Let me get the tape. Let me get the tape. Well, just, I'll tell you what, go to the website and do this. See, what we've just done is saying, I can't think, you know, I'm totally dependent on anybody else. And for Christians, especially in America, we have so left the battlefield in the last hundred years that the average Christian doesn't know how to give an answer for the hope that's in him. Well, you know, I'm just more concerned about my spiritual life. That's what I'm concerned about. Well, your spiritual life, doesn't it include fulfilling mandates, like be ready to give an answer that is for the hope that is in you and giving the gospel to unbelievers? Isn't that just as much a part of your spiritual life as problem solving? Sure it is. And we have to learn how to handle it, and we have to do it without, because uh, it's an, in a sense, it's another form of people testing without wanting to take somebody's head and ram it against the wall because they've just been so brainwashed they can't see truth when it's slapping them in the face. So, you know, I didn't do that. I was relatively calm on the outside, but on the inside, I'm kill this guy. I'm ready to start another jihad here from the Christian side. We're going to have a crusade. So that that was great last night. So I got home about 8.30 after that, and I'm still, you know, you've gone through that. You're still kind of vibrating through that and through the night while I'm sleeping. I'm thinking, you know, I could have said this, I could have said that. And so at 4 o'clock in the morning, I was wide awake. So I thought, hmm, I'm just going to go in and check my email and get on the Internet. So I went in, and it, I, you know, hit my home page, and it, starts to open you see one line appear and then five minutes later the second line appears and five minutes later the third line thing you know road runners down again so i unplugged everything let it sit for about five minutes and then i this is the technology test it's a whole new area of testing from god so i plugged everything back in to reboot everything still the same problem so i just unplugged everything tried to go back to sleep didn't sleep got up at six First thing I'm doing at 6.30 is I'm on the phone to Roadrunner to find out what the problem is. So I'm now, now we have people testing because we have to deal with the customer service representative. 
for whom English is probably not even a second language. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. We, we, we all go through this, and I figure, I, I don't know about you, but I figure if I can't understand them, they can't understand me. Doesn't, isn't that logical? I, I can't understand a word any of these people say. It's some Indian or Nigerian or somebody, and I can't figure out a word they have to say. And so after, and of course, I've done this enough to where I know all the steps, and so this lady's asking me all these steps, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to be really, I'm passing this test, I'm going to be really cool and calm and collected. And so we go through all this stuff, and she wants me to unplug everything and reboot it. I said, I've already done it three times since 4 o'clock in the morning. How many times do I really need to do this? She said, okay, well, I, I'm, I'm not seeing it on my screen. I said, okay, so I redid it. And then she said, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you, you have a router. And I said, I have a router. I said, I want you to un- disconnect the router and run the line directly to your, to your modem. Now, Jack Keith did that. And Lisa, I don't know how to do that. So I said, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. And she said, well, no, I need you. I'll walk you through. I said, no, 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 I, I, I can't do that. I, I don't have a clue where any of these wires are. I can't do this. She, and she starts off. She said, well, I, I can help you do this. I said, excuse me, what part of I can't do this and I don't know how to do this don't you comprehend? She said, well, just a minute, let me talk to my supervisor. Because, because what she had said earlier was since she had gotten a ping off the, off the modem, they couldn't send a technician out. And I said, look, I, have, I don't have a clue how to do what you just told me to do. Meantime, I'm sending an email to Jack saying, you know, i got a problem with I'm all hosed up here. Come rescue me at 6.30 in the morning. And uh, so about that, about that time, she says, okay, I've got, I've got permission to send a tech out tomorrow to, to, to look at your system. I said, great. And about then, all of a sudden, everything started working again. I don't know. People testing, apologetic, everything all, all hit. So I'm, I'm thinking about this, and I've been th- just ruminating on people testing all day long and thinking, how do we get ourselves in a position where we can th- deal with these people tests? Because we've got to face it every single day because we're living in the midst of a lot of Lousy, rotten sinners. And whether they're our spouses or our children or our parents or our employers or employees or co-workers or clients or whatever, we've got to deal with them. And it's some, some days, you know, we're just ready to wring everybody's neck and other days we're not. And then on the outside, there's just this whole environment that puts an extra level of adversity on us in dealing with the cosmic system and the political system and the bureaucratic system and the traffic on I-10 and all of this. And so we have to stop and think. We can't just bounce off off the walls or ricochet from one event to another emotionally, which most of us do far too often than we're willing to admit, especially when we're, when we're in Bible class. One of the first things we have to realize is in dealing with people, we often face four unrealistic expectations. We have four unrealistic expectations. Realistic expectation number one is my spouse should automatically know what I want in any situation. (laughs) See, some of you have been married a long time. You understand this. My spouse should automatically know what I want in any given situation. 
husband or wife, they should be a mind reader. That's an unrealistic expectation. Unrealistic expectation number two, my employee or my student or my client or my teacher should be more responsible, pick your word, be more responsible, more involved, more active, and their failure to do so reflects on me. So I'm mad at them. I'm just irritated with them because my, my student, my teacher, my client, my coworker isn't performing the way I think they should. Then I'm mad at them, irritated with them, because that reflects on me. And we all know that it's all about me. Third unrealistic expectation, that people can make us happy. People can't make us happy. You know, there's a corollary to the, this, and that is to the degree that you think people can make you happy, they can make you miserable. So if you think that if I just marry that right person or if my wife would just change or if my husband would just change, I would be happy, then you're, you, you know, you're on a slippery slope to misery because no person has the, the capability of making you happy. Happiness is between you and the Lord and your, the proper orientation of your soul to the issues of life. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times when we're sad or we're disappointed or we're grieving or we're, we're hurt by circumstances. But what overrides everything is this sense of joy and happiness. When Jesus is at the graveside of Lazarus just before he, he calls Lazarus to come forth, Jesus looks on the crowd and what did he do? He wept. He didn't cry. He didn't just kind of... He wept. I mean, the word that's used there indicates that there is a full-blown weep going on here. He is just letting it out because he is seeing in his humanity the crowds that are in misery as they're grieving for the loss of their friend. And as the God-man, he's not, he's not concerned about Lazarus being he knows what's going to happen in five minutes. He's going to call Lazarus out of the grave. He's not weeping for Lazarus. He's not grieving for a loss. He recognizes that man was never created to go through death and loss. That's the result of sin. And that's a great demonstration of the compassion that God has for fallen creatures who are having to deal with the fallen uh, sinful world. People can't make us make us happy. Happiness only comes when we have proper orientation to God. And see, Jesus never lost his joy. He never lost his happiness. And he says his joy he gives to us, but even in the midst of his joy. And see, we think of that as being inconsistent, that I can't have dead, rock-solid joy in my soul and at the same time be weeping because of compassion for how somebody's hurt or even how I've been hurt. But we can do both at the same time. So they're not inconsistent with one another. People, that's, a, that's an unrealistic expectation that people can make you happy. Fourth uh, unrealistic expectation, that we should be able to make it through the day without having to go through people testing. We're gonna, it's, it's inevitable because we're dealing in a, we're in a fallen world with fallen people. And we tend to think up, and I don't know about you, but I just get irritated sometimes at people. My wife has a tendency to say that I don't suffer fools lightly. I don't suffer fools at all. 
It's not that I don't suffer them lightly. I don't suffer them at all. That's my sin nature. And especially if they're spiritual fools. And if they can't see spiritual light when, when you've got the spotlight in their face, that is a test for me. So, what's reality? Reality is what we have to deal with. And the more we orient our thinking to reality, which is defined by the Word of God, the easier it is to make it through uh, people testing and to keep our thought on the Word of God and apply doctrine through the process rather than just reacting. First of all, people, because people are people and people are sinners, they always have the potential of hurting us. Because people are people and people are sinners, they always have the potential of hurting us. I don't care how much you love them. I don't care how much they love you. I don't care how close you are to them. Because people are people. They always have the potential to disappoint us, to irritate us, to hurt us. Uh, All of that is, is always a potential. And secondly, that hurt can be real or perceived. See, they may not actually do something to hurt you, but you may just perceive it that way and com- and completely misread it. I remember when I was at, I, I was about 20 years old, 19, 20 years old, and I was a counselor at Camp Penile. And the male counselors at Camp Penile always wanted to be somewhere else during what was called older girls camp. Older girls camp was the 13 and 14 year olds. Because you know, the, if you ever dealt with 13 and 14 year old girls, I don't know what's worse. I think 13 and 14 year old girls are much worse than 13 and 14 year old boys. I mean, their emotions are going crazy and they fall in love with every male they see. And, and we used to joke about this as, as a guy counselors. We'd just sit up. And we, see, our table was up in the front and you'd just look up like you're in general direction of this table over there and some girl would see you look that way and they're instantly in love. Two minutes later, you look that way and you have a frown on your face. You've broken her heart. And you've created a major problem for her counselor. I mean, this happened all the time. We just hated being there during that particular time. But you see, that was, you know, nobody was trying to hurt anybody. But you would just inadvertently just, just you know, have a grumpy look on your face or frown at something somebody said. And somebody else would think that you were intending that for them. So we have to distinguish between... A hurt that can be real or perceived, but how we handle it is the same. Whether that hurt that's directed towards us is a real hurt or we just perceive it, it's our mental attitude, which has to be focused on doctrine, that remains the same. We have to realize that people can love us and hurt us. They can hate us and hurt us. They can just not care about us and ignore us and hurt us. But people always have that, that potential. They can undermine us. They can attack us behind our backs. They can slander us. They can malign us. They can verbally and physically abuse us. People can uh, perform criminal acts against us and make us victims of crime and victims of their sin. But, you know, the model for dealing with all this is always the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we go back to. And you think about people testing and the Lord Jesus Christ. His disciples failed him. They failed to even understand what he was trying to teach them. How many times must the Lord Jesus Christ, if he had had a sin nature, wanted to take Peter's head and just use it as a battering ram against the nearest tree? So his disciples failed him. Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. At his hour of need at the cross, every one of them fled the scene except for one, who was John. 
Throughout his ministry with them, they frequently misunderstood him. They never really seemed to listen to him. They didn't always trust him. His enemies vilified him, slandered him, told tales about him, said he was a a drunkard and a glutton, and uh, they tried to stone him on different occasions because of what he said. And these were the people that he came to save. His family didn't understand who he was or why he came, and not one of them believed on him until after the resurrection, except for his mother. His nation, he came to say, rejected him, beat, beat him, crucified him, and rejected the Messiah that they had been promised for, for generations. Yet, And no one in history has faced people testing like the Lord Jesus Christ. You think we think we deal with dumb people. You think we think we deal with sinners who just don't get the point. I mean, here's the, the, the righteous, eternally righteous, absolute righteous God of the universe who is walking around with people. It, it must be like what, what you or I would feel if one day we had to go scuba diving in a cesspool. Because he was dealing with these creatures that were so screwed up by human viewpoint and by sin and by religion and he came there to save them and yet they they rejected him left and right so, but how he handled that is the same way we handle it because in his humanity he had to pass those same people tests and he had to handle it the same we do, way we do with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God working together And he faced every one of those problems the same way. And he was setting up the model, the standard, for how we are to handle those problems of betrayal, rejection, stupidity, rebellion, uh, disrespect. All these things he had to deal with in a much greater way than we do. So the first thing that we have to do whenever we hit a test of any kind including a people test, is to stop and realize that it's a test. It's only a test, and it's another opportunity to grow spiritually. The problem that most of us face is we think about that about 10 minutes into the test. And if we can just figure out how to, how to close that time gap a little bit, then we might start advancing spiritually. So we'll come back and talk about the uh, test, the spiritual skills next time with our head bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us, paid the penalty for our sins, that by faith in him we can have eternal life. Father, we pray that you take the things we studied and encourage us with the sufficiency of your grace, the sufficiency of your word, and the sufficiency of our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.